our first episode recording where you're in attending, I think, right? Congrats. No, I think the last one was... Uh, Maybe. Thank oh, you. Oh, well, this is yeah, the um, first one we're releasing when you're in attending. So maybe we can have the same conversation true. twice. Yeah. And yeah, just it's it's good. Except <laughs> except what, the um, reason I really wanted to say that is because I wanted to say that you're in attending, but you still can't remember to turn on your microphone when it's time to record our episodes. So this is just to remind I, everyone that you can be an attending physician and still be an idiot. <laughs> so let me, that is a good point. And let me say that I'm actually one of the better attendants because <laughs> apparently when we were going into telehealth and everything for COVID, everybody was very prepared about how helpless, especially some of the aged attendings would be in terms of I mean even when we went to EMR I mean it's just you know I've had attendings that would say just just do my note for me I don't I don't even do this so you know what it's okay um I've had a long day uh only did 30 miles today so I'm a little tired um not firing on all whatever cylinders see I'm ready. I can't even make fun of you because then you do things like run 30 miles in a day. And <laughs> I don't think I've run a mile since I was forced to in gym class in high school. And even then, I probably walked for half of it. So, yeah, you know, it's it's what I do. And most of it was on sand. And let me tell you, I, Baywatch is fake. <laughs> it's like running on sand is the most unsexy thing ever. Mm-mm. No. No, thank you. I heard it's really difficult. But um, it's difficult because it's like every step you take, it is there's like, you know, eight more muscles that were, or it's just like eight more movements that have to correct your step. Um, So me and my friend Shane, we did, we wanted to do a 50K. um, And we didn't realize that we would run out of like towns, I guess. So we would ask people like, hey, is there like a path here? Because it was a beach town. They'd be like, no, you got to go on the beach. And I think they were just trying to kick us off of their town. Um, But we did it. It was great. I'm sunburned and yeah, ready to do this. (laughs) So do you want to introduce us to our topic today? So I want to say a couple things and then I want you to say a couple things and then we'll get into it because I just want to kind of say that during these crazy times of not only COVID, but um, protests and everything that's been going on with Black Lives Matter and kind of re-evaluating equality and, you know, what that means today versus in the past, I, I do have to, you know, apologize. I've been very kind of silent. And I don't think it's because I am afraid to speak up. I just, that's not my platform. Like my Instagram is, you know, I haven't posted anything to it in a year probably, but it's just really not. It's not my platform. This is my platform. This is, you know, how I get information out to other people and have conversations about things. Um, So I was kind of waiting until we could do an episode to really kind of dive into what, you know, what I've learned about, which is kind of ethics and medicine and prejudices and 
you know, and it wasn't even really that far into the past that these things were going on. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to, those are my thoughts and I know, you know, you use social media a little bit more than me. Um, it's just like, I post the stupidest things. So I just didn't feel like that was my, my platform. So what do you, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, no, I totally respect that. I think it more like what's important presently is for whatever someone's platform is to use that. If someone has no platform, I don't know what to say about that. Like, I hope that each individual at least has people that they talk to in their real life that they can, right. you know, um, have important conversations with. But obviously, I'm very active on Instagram. So I have been vocal in my support for things like Black Lives Matter and stuff like that on Instagram. But I will say that I was incredibly ignorant until probably the past, like, I don't even know, like presently, I'm I'm learning how to get out of my ignorance. Um, and it was very enlightening, a pretty terrible way to read about some of the things that have been going on in our country and how, especially like part of the purpose of the topic that we're going to introduce. But um, in general, this episode is sort of to talk about one of the ways that, you know, a black person was taken advantage of for the furtherment of medicine in our country and our world. But while this is a sort of, honestly, a more benign story, there are a lot of horrific stories. Um, I know that we're not going to get into a lot of them today, but I did start reading this medical apartheid book. Am I even pronouncing that right? I'm like terrible at pronouncing things. I think it's apartheid. Apartheid. See? I think you, it's a hard T. See, I don't even know how to say it. So a medical apartheid. And I could be wrong. Yeah. I'm sure uh, C. Jonah agrees. Okay. Because I'm terrible We're at getting pronouncing a things. Up. But I was, a couple of the things that I just read about briefly that I'm going to mention are, um, first off, are gynecological instruments that we use presently mm. in OBI today. They were created through experiments. Um, this man named Dr. Sims, because he's an asshole, I'll say his name, he experimented on black women who were slaves in the 1940s and he didn't use anesthesia on them when he made these gynecological instruments so i've heard that there's some people are using them like using different names he also did vaginal surgeries on these women and didn't use any anesthesia um it was pretty horrible reading about some of the stuff obviously one of the really famous things most people know about is the syphilis study that was done in the 1970s and they knew how to cure syphilis but instead of curing it they just let it progress in you know black men to just sort of see what would happen to them and that's how we know like the full I guess stages of syphilis but honestly to this day this issue still exists I mean just one thing is infant mortality rate for black infants is double that of whites um although a lot of rates of diseases are similar in black and white individuals, oftentimes because of systemic racism, uh, because of the poverty that is greater in minorities, especially uh, black people. They often aren't diagnosed as early, and because of that, they have higher mortality rates from so many types of cancers and things like that. So it's really terrible, and our country sucks, and hopefully raising awareness to these issues is the first step in the right direction. Yep, I I agree. 
So I'm going to be talking about Henrietta Locks, and I first learned about this in grad school, and I it just I thought it was my first reaction was. You know, when you learn about it on the surface, it's like, oh, wow, this woman had, you know, immortal cells that just kept dividing. But, you know, it's not it's it's way more than that. And, you know, what's interesting is I was in grad school before I think a lot of the um, the foundation was started and a lot of the good things were to come of it. So, um, you know, it's it's not not a good thing. But now I feel like I've learned I've learned a little bit more and um you know I will I'll carry that with me and make sure that when I'm you know if I'm ever teaching about this that I make sure that I you know tell the whole story like I will now so uh HeLa cells are the only cell line uh to reproduce indefinitely um they've also been called an immortal cell line and they're named after uh, Henrietta Locks. So they took H-E for Henrietta and L-A. And that was just this one particular pathologist's way of labeling his his cultures. So we'll get into that. So she was actually born Loretta Pleasant, and it's unclear how it went from Loretta to Henrietta. Um, they think it was kind of like a, a nickname. And then uh, Locks was after um the land that her family worked on. Um, I believe she is a descendant of slaves and her great-grandfather was white. So I think it's all related uh, to the to the family the, where they lived. But she was born in August 1st, 1920, so she would have been 100 a few days ago, in Roanoke, Virginia. Uh, her mother died during childbirth of one of her siblings. So her father moved them to Clover, Virginia, where uh, she and her siblings were raised by her grandfather. And she, at a very early age, worked as a tobacco farmer. Uh, so she married her cousin, David, which which was uh, quite common. And uh, they married in April 10th, 1941, um, I think she had had two kids prior to the official marriage. So the reason I say that is that 1941, and then she had five kids, and then she had five kids prior to getting married because in 1951 is when she was diagnosed. So um, there was, you know, they were spread out in age. Uh, one of her daughters uh, had uh, developmental disability and ultimately... Um, died in a, which is a whole nother story, uh, died in like a mental institute um, in Baltimore, which, you know, I assure you the conditions were not ideal there. So before her fifth pregnancy, she felt a lump on her cervix. And this was before she knew she was pregnant and her family was like, oh, you know, it's, it's probably the pregnancy. And she's like, oh, you're right, I'm pregnant. So at uh, this time she had moved from Virginia into Baltimore, where her husband, David, who was known as Day, um, he was a steel worker, and they lived in Turner Station, which was kind of a community for a lot of the steel workers, which was, a, you know, a thriving industry back then, post uh, or in the middle of World War II. Um, they bought a house, and she essentially uh, started to develop vaginal bleeding around 1951, and she was discovered to have a pretty large cervical tumor. 
and two biopsies uh, officially confirmed cervical cancer. I was a little unclear on this, but some, I think they took some tissue during her birth, and then I think a few weeks later, or a few months later, I'm not entirely sure, they took some more sample, and they both were consistent with the diagnosis of cervical cancer. So um, her first treatment, which was standard of care at the time, as far as what I read, was... um, was radium, and it was essentially stitching these small glass tubes of radioactive material to the cervix. And when they did that procedure, they took a sample of healthy tissue and of the cancer tissue. So, um, and this is, I got a lot of this information from the John Hopkins Medicine site. So they say that at the time that this happened in the early 50s, it was common practice to obtain extra samples uh, during a biopsy, regardless of race or social economic status, for research purposes without permission. And it was this one particular uh, cancer researcher, Dr. George uh, Gay, G-E-Y, he was searching for an immortal cell line, and he had not been successful up to this point. So um, he had noticed that uh, Henrietta cells uh, divided and doubled every 20 to 24 hours. Um, So, you know, this was, this had never, he hadn't seen this before. So she passed a very short while later in 1951. Uh, She was a mother of five at the time. Uh, She succumbed to cancer. They found that she had Mets. And after her death, more samples were taken at her autopsy. And so essentially, uh, so years go by and they're using these cells. And this is important. So, you know, the cells, let me explain. Does any, do you have experience with culturing cells at all? Um, Like back in undergrad a little bit. Yeah. Not really. (laughs) Essentially, don't don't come at me. I'm just I did work in research, but I don't I know this was my job and I know it was very tedious. You had to get all the conditions right. You have a medium for the cells to grow on and you grow them in a certain I think it's like under a hood. There has to be a certain temperature, humidity, light and the cells grow and not all of the cultures have the ideal conditions. So they had never seen um you know, they've never seen this before. And Hopkins, the John Hopkins Medicine website states that they had never sold or profited from the discovery or distribution of the cells. However, there it gets a little crazy from here on out. So during the 19, early 1970s, they discovered that her cells were actually so viable in the environment that they were contaminating other cultures. So they were perhaps maybe harassing her descendants, her family members, her children, and brothers and sisters for DNA samples, for blood samples. And I'm not exactly sure how this would have worked in the 1970s, but essentially they wanted to see if anybody in her family with the blood sample if they could differentiate 
help differentiate the contaminated samples versus the clean samples with her cells. So I, I'm not sure how they would have done that. Um, it seems like a little advanced of a technique for the time, but apparently this is kind of the start of the communication. And I will say that at this time, they had been using pseudonyms for her cells. I believe Helen Larson was a pseudonym. So her her identity was anonymous up to this point. So the role of the cells was complete, what they were doing with the cells was completely unknown to her family um, until this time in the 1970s. And um, in 1985, they released her medical records publicly. And this is when she was de-identified as Gila and whatever pseudonyms they were using to Henrietta Locks. And, um, Essentially, just to kind of, what were these cells used for? By this time, the cell line had contributed to uh, breakthroughs such as the polio vaccine, uh, which is a whole nother story because the vaccine was then used, um, you know, experimentally in, you know, underserved ethnicity races, uh, socioeconomic status prisoners. So that's all that just it's like a full circle of just terrible, unethical medical practices. So leukemia, AIDS and cancer research, human genome and then uh, toxicology eventually leading to the effects of zero gravity on cells. Her cells are actually sent into space. And that's the thing that stuck out to me when I remember learning about that. I thought that was so cool. Um, I mean, for what they did with it, like it was obviously they should have, this is completely unethical, but had that had been, uh, correctly. Yeah. If they had gotten um, permission from the family, this whole situation would be very different. Like it's great to make medical advancements. And I mean, I don't know like what you were, cause I don't know. I obviously don't know this story as in depth as you do. I don't know if they would rue routinely like I, I do believe what they said about the taking extra biopsies from people back in the day and like not telling them because that seems very consistent with medicine at that time but I guess is where it diverts from normal customs is the taking extra samples at her autopsy like back then did they generally mm-hmm. I don't know if you know this but did they generally get permission from like you know people they deemed that they had to like a white person or something like that so that is where okay so I tried to get just the facts I tried to pick obviously Johns Hopkins is going to be I don't want to use the word bias source but they have their own role in this mm-hmm. whole story I tried to uh, get information from my, well, I'll just tell you, the Smithsonian Magazine, uh, the Lancet, Encyclopedia Britannica, and then a couple articles with Rebecca Skloot, who was the journalist who eventually wrote The Immortal Life of Henry L. Okay. I highly recommend it. So I, I don't know how forthcoming any institutions would have been with that information, um, unfortunately, I mean, it's terrible, but I, I feel like we could assume anything was possible and, you know, they, at, for, in her case, they definitely didn't ask 
or at least disclose why they would want more tissues at autopsy. Mm -hmm. But whether or not that was common practice across all races and all um, patients that were treated at John Hopkins is completely, I don't know, because I'm not even sure if that would be easy to find. Yeah. So, um, it's, you know, it's terrible. I know that there's a posthumously, post, yeah, posthumously, there's a lot of extra, um, rules and, you know, restrictions and guidelines on taking tissue. Um, and even like exhuming a body is a very long process. So I feel like there should have been, you know, the proper steps taken, but I I don't Mm -hmm. know. Mm Mm-hmm. So some of this, uh, some of the bioethical issues raised in this case, um, number one, obviously, informed consent. So do you want to tell us what that is? Yeah, well, informed consent is essentially just making sure that someone has, uh, you know, understands what's, what's being asked to them, understands any risk versus benefits fully is in the right state of mind to understand and then consent to what's going on. So, uh, the, you know, more simple thing is informed consent is used in, in surgeries, but it can be even, um, you know, obviously in situations like oftentimes it's going to have to be used in research trials. Like the whole way we make advancements in research is to get informed consent, um, you know, a situation like this where after someone has passed using, you know, their body to make medical advancements, a lot of people are going to feel positively towards that. And it actually wouldn't be hard to get informed consent for most people because most people really want to help, especially when it's not hurting them. Right. right? So this, the, the big thing here right. is just being respectful. Um, you know, this is why I didn't. When I said this is more benign, what I meant by that earlier is that, you know, this individual was not hurt by what was done. But unfortunately, there are so many situations where people are are hurt or, you know, even today, I'm fairly certain that I've heard that there are a lot of research studies that minorities or, you know, people are who come from more disadvantaged backgrounds are you know, sort of encouraged to enter and maybe not fully made aware of any risks that go along with this. So it's definitely Mm -hmm. still an issue on a deeper level today. But something like this, you know, I think it's more just, I don't know if it was a thing of the time period or a thing specifically, you know, for this situation, but um, it it wouldn't be difficult to explain to like someone's family, you know, these are this is what we found from these cells. Can we please have more cells? And then giving credit, and perhaps I know that um, obviously in a situation where there could be profit, then if someone, oh, yes, which the situation I know there is a lot of monetary profit involved, but you know then the family members or whoever should be compensated. Just like today in research trials often part of informed consent is if there is if there is the thought that there is some harm to you or you know even the fact that you might have to travel or give up time to be involved in something they usually provide you with monetary compensation yeah that is that is such a good point had they asked 
they, I mean, who would, this is an amazing opportunity. They would have gotten permission. I, I can't say for sure, but it, it almost, it's kind of like, it's that saying it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. Like, well, no, not, <laughs> not, not at all. Not in this situation, but I wonder if part of it was the financial that they didn't yeah. want oh, to be I'm responsible sure. for sharing. I'm sure, and the thing too is like, you know, usually I w- I would think in a situation like this, you know, there would be potentially other benefits that would be involved. Like, I mean, just be being able to say that you know you're relate i don't even know like not even written in stone benefits but there are a lot of like um not as like written benefits that come from if you are related to someone and you know you're supporting them them being used in research or something like that especially since this research is so like widespread and has made contributed to so many changes it's, I know, it's, and now there's family planning issues that come if, you know, you discover something when you, uh, you know, map out the genome. It's just, bottom line is John Hopkins, when they kind of went through each bioethical issue, they said, well, now we have the IRB, so all of this, none of this would ever happen again. <laughs> Um, I mean, (laughs) we all know what the IRB, I mean, the IRB has approved so many insane studies. If you go on like Instagram right now, you can't avoid it. There are so many racist studies, sexist studies, just like terrible Mm -hmm. all around studies that take advantage of people that contribute to furthering, you know, just racist beliefs, especially, but um, just a lot of discriminatory stuff. And these studies are getting approved by people in the IRB. So, I mean, there's at least some people there that don't have, you know, everyone's best interest at heart. And I will actually tell you with my limited experience with the IRB is that in times of you know, there's hot, I almost want to say that there's like fast trackable studies, like anything with COVID Mm -hmm. was just like, let's get it out, let's get it done. And I don't want to say that there was kind of like a skimming over possibly when you have that volume of studies coming in, you're gonna miss I'm not I don't don't please if you work at the IRB, feel free to reach out. But I just (laughs) You're going to something is going to be missed when you have that volume of cases, case studies, research studies coming mm-hmm. through. But what I I, I mean, I think like something else, too, that needs to be pointed out is my thought when I was looking through this stuff is a lot of the people who are behind some of the really upsetting studies that could put out there. They're extremely prolific people who have tons and tons of research right they're like big names and then they they slide in something that is racist or discriminatory in another way and it gets approved by the irb i would imagine that if you are someone so prolific you do have connections at places like the irb people who will Mm -hmm. just sort of approve anything you do and then that's how this type of stuff gets out there right so i don't even think it's the volume i think generally the people who are behind these messed up studies that are still getting put out and published and things like that they're people who everyone just sort of you know bows down to them and lets them do whatever they want so 
It's terrible. Yeah. I mean, and I know I can think of one study in particular that was circulating on social media about the um, attractiveness of women and endometriosis. Oh, yeah. Is yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. That, that was one that was wild. <laughs> I would say probably zero, uh, you know, contribution to any, you know yeah. what I mean? It's Well, and... It's in that same post, there was one um, about how, like, I forget if it if it called out a specific minority or if it was just saying, like, it was something about, like, it was so wild. It was something about, like, minorities being lazier, and it was written by a physician and published, and it said, like, their laziness is the reason that they can't get ahead. And that was one wild one that came out. And then I was just reading one yesterday, and it's written by some guy in the cardiology department at UPIT. And he's like that. He was literally the program director of like the interventional cardiology group, I believe. Um, and he wrote something saying that, like, you know, uh, like, it was something about like, I'm not even gonna like say it offhand, right? But something about like affirmative action. And he was specifically saying that it lets, like, unqualified minorities in, and then they struggle, and then they don't match residency. And it was just so absurd on so many levels um, that I, you know, it's hard to even know where to start because it's so crazy. But in these studies, I think a lot of them have been retracted since they've got so much attention on social media. But, like, for example, the guy at UPIT, like, he is not, stepping like he's he d- is not apologizing for the article he's not stepping down you pit isn't you know getting rid of him which just shows that you know there's a system that supports these people right and you think about if someone's a prolific researcher and they're in a department like that what does it really come down to they generate a lot of profit for the hospital so the hospital doesn't want to get rid of right. them and we can ignore that but that's the real behind all this right if this was some guy who wasn't generating profit for the hospital and he put something this was like his first yeah, study no the hospital would just drop him they'd be like we don't want that bad right. press it doesn't it, this it doesn't matter if they care yeah. about like people being racist or discriminatory in other ways but for the real reason a hospital will stand by someone is because number one most hospitals don't really care about those issues they just care about money and these types of people who are behind these studies that, you know, are refusing to retract them, they generally, you know, their privilege in life has also led them to a position where they tend to be behind generating a lot of income for and revenue for their hospitals. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's a good kind of tie into, you know, some of the things we're seeing today, especially in our, in our field. But, uh, a way around this, and, you know, I'm currently doing my own research project, and it, all you have to do is anonymi- anonymize mm-hmm. yes. the samples. Just de-identify de- yeah. them. This is sample A. Only I know that sample A is this patient ID, which then I also don't even know what their name is. Like, you, you have to have multiple steps of de-identification. Yeah. It, if it's data, it, it's really it's not easy. Like, because me and my attending are working on submitting something to the IRB right now, and like, it'll get if you're de-identifying it, it gets fast tracked automatically because no one's like 
you know, it's not like HIPAA information right. in any way. It's just like data being collected to prove something. Right. And I mean, it's a win-win, for lack of better words, because I have up to 500 uh, people in my study, but they're just cases at this point. They're not, you know, anybody, they're not personal, but I also don't have to do five that 500 informed consents. You know what I mean? Like, it's not, it just makes it easier. Yes. Yeah. And it's it's just... They tr- I don't want to say they tried, but they really, they gave her pseudonyms and then it just snowballed and, you know, they had to, you know, come out with it. And it's just, I, I can't even imagine what her family had to have gone through because that's, you know, that's, it doesn't matter what the diagnosis is, what the treatment was, what the outcome is. That's privileged, private information and only belongs to the person yeah. and regardless of the situation. Yeah. And, you know, again, going back to the financial, this was the first known human material to be bought and sold, helping million and billion dollar industries. I mean, it's, it's just crazy that, you know, that this got so out of hand and then you look at what it did and it's just it doesn't matter almost you know look at all the advancements and breakthroughs but you if you don't have it right from the beginning it's it's kind of just jaded mm-hmm. and it, it just has a really bad you know a bad taste well it creates a it. culture of distrust right so like part of it right. too is like you know, if you're that, if you're her family and your mom or your loved one or whatever she is to you, if, you know, her body was used for science and sure, it created a bunch of great advancements. And I'm sure there's a lot of mixed feelings about this. Like, I would imagine there's like a combination of like happiness for the advancements and then a lot of anger at, you know, the uh, just the lying that was that was done to get there. And then also like you know, no one really wants their, the, the thought that your medical files or your information can be made public or a doctor could not be being fully honest with you about what they're doing, you know, that breeds into, like, mistrust of the, you yeah. know, healthcare system here in America, which is also, you know, not a good thing, but an understandable thing to occur. Right. I mean... You know, but here we are. We know who she is. We know her life story. And I I think the only thing we can do is is kind of, you know, celebrate who she was as a person. I mean, you know, her family is now actually involved in, um, a couple of members of her family are involved in the um, review of applications of researchers that... um, want to use the HeLa uh, cells mm-hmm. and, you know, for sequencing. So they're actually involved in the review committee for that. Um, as of 2013, they work with the NIH. And, just, you know, in terms of John Hopkins Hospital, they recognized that it was segregated at the time, um, but claimed that everybody had equal treatment. And, you know, Doubt on it. their website, they state that... <laughs> just putting it out if there. you have separate wards you're ha- i just don't see 
how, unless you say, well, we had this governing body that oversaw that both, you know, that both wards were being, like, I just, why are you segregating then if everyone's getting equal treatment? Like, why? Yeah. Just, it's, they desegregated in the 1950s. I mean, the reality is that medicine isn't even desegregated today. People, whether on a, if people are, you know, either overtly racist or they're not conscious of their racism and they're treating people differently, like, you know, the data shows, like, how can it be ignored that, like, I think the infant mortality in New York City for black infants is, like, is it, like, or is it the mothers? I don't know. I'm getting it confused. But one of them is like 16 times. It's both. Is it 16 times yeah. for both? Anyways. It's, they go they, they go hand in yeah, hand it's, also. I know. That's why it's hard for me to keep track of which one it is. But it's horrible, you know? And it's still in just because hospitals got desegregated. Well, the reality is that, you know, black individuals in America tend to live in more urban areas still because of systemic racism. They tend to live in you know, poor urban areas, and then the hospitals there have to take care of more people. They have less funding. Physicians are less likely to, you know, be as attracted to these hospitals because they're going to get paid less and perhaps, um, you know... They need incentive incentive. on their student loans (laughs) in order to work there. Exactly. So there's all these issues that compile. And, you know, obviously, I think we're both still just learning about them. But the first step, I think, is just everyone trying to be more aware of things. And then once you're aware, you know, you start to look for these things on a conscious level and be like, am I contributing to this? If I am contributing to this, how can I not contribute to this? And like, check right. yourself. Exactly. Yeah. That's really all all we can do. Now, I don't really... So getting back to the desegregation, John Hopkins Hospital, this is from their website, began desegregating in the 1950s with... Full integration of ward services in surgery in 1959, nine years later. By 1973, all inpatient services were desegregated. Uh, That's a long time. Because there's a lot of resistance, clearly. They didn't really want to desegregate, you know? But I don't even see how this is like, this is a a chart. It's like, this was the issue. This is how we fixed Mm -hmm. it. 1973, I mean, our parents were alive. Like, I don't even, like, that's not, Mm -hmm. it's not a flex. It's not good. Yeah. (sighs) If if you knew, like, why did it take so long? Because, yeah. And it kind of goes hand in hand with the timeline of her information being, you know, covered up and then using it. It's kind of like in the 70s and 80s, it was like, okay, now we have to do something because we're getting called Yeah, out. no, I'm sure at that point there was enough press and pressure, you know, that these things have to be addressed, at least on a surface level, right? Like, you can desegregate a whole hospital, but all the in- individuals, most of the staff can still be, like, even overtly racist. That's, like, part of, I think, a lot of what's going on in the country right now is far as in regards like protests and stuff like that is like just because all of this stuff is is supposedly in quotes illegally changed doesn't mean that anything has actually changed right you could still have a you're only as equal as your most 
racist staff member, mm, if that yeah. makes any sense. Yeah. And it's it's not as a whole, you know, and people have to be so, like, it just, you have to, I don't know if there's any red flags, but, like, people are speaking out on social media. Hospitals are, are kind of, you know, they, they have to be cracking down on this. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And I and they are I think from what I've seen, but you know, on an institutional level, it, you know, it exists and it, it's it's so unfortunate, yeah. and it exists at at, not, at unconscious levels as well. And I guess that's what we have to be very aware and check ourselves. And you know, it, it's just been such a long process that these hospitals are old and they're built on these you know, ideals, whether or not they're wrong or right. So it's going to take a lot of undoing from our generation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I do think some of it, you know, it's clearly not an overnight thing, and these things are take way too long, seriously way too long. But I hope that, you know, what's been going on this year with Black Lives Matter is more steps in the right direction. I do think most people of our generation specifically, you know, are want things to be in a good direction for like everyone and really do want people to have a good experience. But, you know, um, obviously there are still plenty of people that don't feel that way. And even amongst our generation, whether it's just like from ignorance or wherever this comes from, you know, it'll still make progress difficult and slow. Right. So now they're, you know, Hopkins boasts new initiatives to better serve the entire community. And uh, they've been working with the Locks family to establish scholarships, symposia on medical ethics, and they even named a school campus building after Miss Henrietta Locks. So, okay. All you right. Know. And I, I want to leave... I want to leave everybody with a quote from Rebecca Skloot. Um, and it's, I'll just read the quote. Yeah, just read the quote. <laughs> so this, <laughs> the story of Gila cells and what happened with Henrietta has often been held up as an example of racist white scientists doing something malicious to a black woman. But that's not accurate. The real story is much more subtle and complicated. What is very true about science is that there are human beings behind it, and sometimes even with the best of intentions, things go wrong. One of the things I don't want people to take from the story is the idea that tissue culture is bad. So, so much of medicine today depends on tissue culture, HIV tests, many basic drugs, all of our vaccines. We would have none of that if it wasn't for the scientists collecting cells from people and growing them. And the need for these cells is going to get greater, not less. Instead of saying we don't want that to happen, we need to, we just need to look at how it can happen in a way that everyone is okay with. I like it. I agree. Yeah. Exactly. So, and I think that that kind of highlights the dichotomy between, yes, these cells, the, this, you know, these cells, nobody even really knows how they're, they're just dividing They're you know, HeLa cells have made such great advancements, but 
it's just overshadowed by this injustice to this woman and her family. Mm -hmm. So I think that quote kind of, you know, tries to tie those ideas together. Yes. Have you seen the movie? No. Where is it? Where can I watch it? I I think I think I found it on either Netflix or on demand, but Mm -hmm. um, it was good. Well, I shall have to watch it. I have a long list of things I need to watch, and honestly, my brain shuts off, and I just watch stupid things like reality TV too much. But <laughs> I did watch um, on this topic. If you haven't seen Thirteenth Amendment on Netflix, you absolutely have to, and it, it really shows you how like systemic racism has contributed to like uh, so many things present today in America, especially our injustice system and like how essentially imprisonment or incarceration is the new like legal form of slavery here in America have you seen it I have seen it it's wild Netflix does a good job I think recommending because it always popped up Mm -hmm. it would always pop up on like my recommendations for like a year even after new things came out so um yeah they you know yeah they know me better than I know myself, yeah. so I have to go with well, it. I have a, I don't know how much more you have to say, but I have a couple more recommendations that I can talk about quickly. I was just going to talk about the Tuskegee syphilis study. Okay. Before you get into that, so, I just want to... Yeah, yeah I want to mention a couple of things. Um, when I was reading Medical Apartheid, which I now know how to pronounce, um, the author, she got interested in doing this book because when she was, I believe, she was like a, maybe she was a journalist. I forget what she did before, well, in her early years. But anyway, she looked into um, organ transplants and it became really clear to her that black people are only donors generally and not recipients of organs. And obviously this is not like the end all be all. And when she was looking into this, it was like decades ago, but it's um, pretty upsetting that one race is being used to donate organs and not benefit from, you know, the receiving of them. And then one quote that stood out to me, and I know Winston Churchill was an asshole, I believe, but he said, he had a quote that said, history is written by the victors. And it sort of points out how, you know, a lot of our understanding of these things is warped because we're only hearing you know, the beliefs of the people who came out on tops, they're not going to focus on a lot of this stuff. And then one thing I also wanted to mention was um, there's this podcast called 1619 and episode four is called How the Bad Blood Started. And it's totally about like how the healthcare system, essentially like the desegregation, all that, well, how it's still racist and a lot of racist stuff sort of got, you know, embedded in our healthcare system. Mm -hmm. So those are just some more things I wanted to mention, but I'd love to hear about the study. Yeah, so I'm not going to talk for as long on this, um, which, you know, obviously it it deserves like a whole, you know, podcast. Mm -hmm. But um, as, are you sure it wasn't Woodrow Wilson who said that? In the book, it Remember says it was too mixed up. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, this is the thing. I'm really bad at history. I'm really bad at pronouncing things. I'm really bad at geography. So don't please never hold any of those things against me. And everything else, honestly, I'm not that great at plenty of things. But I promise I have the right intentions. 
Okay, that's all that matters. <laughs> that's We're this good. whole podcast. <laughs> good intentions. <laughs> good. <laughs> so this, okay, I, I'm going to preface this with, I, I just don't feel good about a lot of things that I've learned in neurology because a lot of it was learned from syphilis because syphilis can impact different parts of the brain and different parts of the spinal cord, which led to early discoveries on diseases. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you, you will have heard of yeah. some of them, but I just, it knowing this, now it's like, well... We really couldn't have just studied this a different way, but it's it's awful. Um, so the Tuskegee syphilis study, um, also known as the United States Public Health Service syphilis study, um, was it started in 1932 in uh, Macomb County, Alabama, and the bulk of the research was to be done at Tuskegee University. So it was, it involved the enrollment of 600 um, men who were black sharecroppers in the area, which was kind of the staple, um, uh, you know, I don't want to say commodity of the area, but it was kind of what was keeping this, uh, this community going. So they were told that in exchange for free uh, medical care, they would be enrolled in this study. And the... It was supposedly to attempt to research cure for syphilis, but it was really to research the effects of syphilis on unbeknownst to the participants. So it was ran by the U.S. Public Health Service, and uh, it involved 600 men, 399 of them with latent syphilis, and uh, 201 men that were, quote-unquote, free of disease, and they told that they were being treated for bad blood, which was a general, which is interesting because it was the name that you mentioned. It was the general term for any ailment mm-hmm. um, of the time. Like, I, I guess, malaise or, or, you know, whatever we call things nowadays. But um, And they were monitored over a period of 40 years. They were given placebo, aspirin, vitamins, um, and physicians in the area, local physicians, were told not to treat and instead to track the full progression of syphilis, despite, as you said before, there being a cure, penicillin, mm-hmm. in 1947. It's, it's, so this one is mind that was withheld because it's so messed up. And it's obviously the story that has the most, um, I guess, publicity. But you just have to think how many other horrible things have been going on if this happened, like, in plain sight not too long ago. Yes. And publicity is exactly what blew this open and and ultimately stopped it. And it was going on for 40 years. So from what year to what year? Uh, 1932 to 1972. Wild. In a terrible, terrible way. So... Essentially, um, in the mid-1960s, a public uh, venereal disease researcher from San Francisco called, uh, named Peter Buxton, he expressed concerns of the ethics of this, and it led to the formation of a committee, and they decided, you know what, let's just follow this experiment to, you know, its fruition, which 
was supposed to culminate in study of the autopsies of these men. So going, actually, let's back up. When the Nuremberg trials also happened in 1947, which was used to expose the Nazi uh, experimentation, and that established basic ethical principles and also punished those who did not, you know, yeah. abide by them. So we even had that. Not only did we have a cure, we had we had some basic principles and just, no, this doesn't apply. This is a different experiment. Well, see, you know, okay. the whole point of that was that, you know, it was setting ethical standards for what's allowed to be done on white people. Right. So, and I'm sure that the people in charge of this experiment kind of talked their way around, oh, this is different because X, Y, and Z. So... In 1972, Buxton and his reporter friend uh, Gene Heller broke the story, and it caused public outrage, and that's what caused the study to end. So, and then in 1973, there was a hearing on the Tuskegee experiments uh, that culminated, most importantly, in the end of the experiments and some new guidelines Mm -hmm. for um, studies, and then... uh, a $10 million uh, settlement. Yeah, but... Which I pray due to... I know, it's low. I just kind of hope that with inflation, maybe it was a little more, but obviously not enough when you look at the stats. There were 28 deaths from syphilis, 100 related to complications of syphilis. Syphilis was passed on to 43 or 40 unknowing oh, spouses See, I and was 19 babies. As soon as you said it, I was like, yeah. to me, that was like the worst That's a part. Like, public health concern. Yeah. Public health. It was like, so all these people and this are going a- and spreading something that could be cured. Are you, are you mad enough? Can I make you more mad? You and all the listeners? Please do Because if you're not mad enough, you heard the 19 babies that they know of that got neonatal syphilis. Let me talk about the stages of syphilis and what these men suffered through. So this was, they had latent syphilis, supposedly. So primary syphilis, um, you get a chancre. And this can, it usually appears on the genitals. And it's, I think it's painful. Is it painful? think so but this I is forget. like some are painless and I some think it's are one painless. of the painful ones but it's so long ago you know that was like you know when the last time I knew that was it's, for my first set of boards <laughs> I mean because there's a lot of dermatologic I'm sure yeah. it, let's just go with pain I think it is a pain and back then lesion. by the way wasn't syphilis and super prominent didn't like everyone have it but they it all got penicillin for it but like it was a really common thing right it's an easy cure yeah it's an easy cure mm-hmm. And if you're if you have an alert allergy to penicillin, they desen- they can desensitize yeah. you, and there's alternative. So it can be in your mouth or in your generals, and it can last up to two months, and then it disappears. And the only reason I want to say it was move- common is because mm-hmm. I don't want people to think like, oh, it's someone's fault that they have syphilis or something like blah 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 like stigmatizing STDs. But back then, especially, um, oh. it was super common. It was like people. I feel like it was almost as prevalent as, like, 
not quite, but maybe almost level of things like HPV and herpes and stuff like that. But I could be wrong, but I think it was like very, very prevalent. The injustice is that treatment was withheld. Mm-hmm. I yeah. mean, it was, you yeah. know, it was prevalent. So then you move on to secondary syphilis, which is um, pink or brown macules involving the palms and the soles of the feet in about 50%. Um, and actually, you can get patches on your like oral mucosa, mm-hmm. like your gums and tongue, and it actually looks like snail tracks. And you get early neurosyphilis, which you can have cranial nerve deficits um, or an aseptic, aseptic meningitis. So essentially you can have eye movement abnormalities, maybe a Bell's palsy, things like that. And, and a lot of times when we see these things in the hospital, we're like, we still test for a syphilis because it can cause these kind of isolated deficits. Then you you see um, posterior uveitis, which is ocular syphilis. That's trouble seeing, but when you do an examination, you can't really see the the problem. Uh, so more rashes, and that's when you get your condyloma lata, which again, one of them is painful. One of them, they won't both be painful. Maybe condyloma um, lata. To go Isn't back that to, the one that's not painful? I well, let, let's just go back to med school because <laughs> it's embarrassing. We should remember this. I don't. It's not relevant um, to my field or yours, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> you can also get hepatitis or nephrotic syndrome. Then you enter the latent phase, which is completely or mostly asymptomatic, and it can last for years. And apparently, this is the stage that the syphilis-positive men were technically in. Mm-hmm. However, untreated, you can go from latent to tertiary, which is terrible. So, and it, it's it's not a good way to die. This is, you know, it, it's awful. So, latent syphilis, you can get uh, tabes dorsalis, which is a similar. It's a it affects the spinal cord. Um, you can get gait impairments and dementia. Um, you, so obviously you could have trouble um, with balance and walking and even like um, sensation. So you don't really know where your limbs are in space. Um, you get pain and temperature issues and it's kind of thought to be similar to a B12 deficiency. Then this is when you get your uh, cardiovascular effects like aortic aneurysm and coronary arteritis and gummas as well and these are ulcerating granulomas on skin bone and organs and gummas are essentially holes and have you ever been to the mutter museum mm-hmm, of course in philly did you see the skull with the holes in yeah. it so that's that's syphilis it literally eats holes in your bones and more neurosyphilis um meningitis just kind of stroke-like symptoms you could lose your speech or motor it's just it's not it's not good at all and unfortunately these are how people died in this study even though there was treatment and they had a diagnosis so I don't even think I need to explain like I don't even need to comment this is just this is terrible murder so 
yeah. So other, just two other things, like I mentioned before, vaccine testing, <clears throat> and then also when radiation was being discovered in terms of diagnosis and also treatment, they targeted underserved populations, races, socioeconomic statuses, prisoners, and institutionalized individuals secondary to mental health. So science is, medical science is extremely jaded, I think is kind of the take-home message. Yep. And what I was actually reading is Martin Luther King Jr. had a quote where he said, of all the forms of inequality, injustice in health is the most shocking and the most inhumane. And I think that's certainly easy to see that that's the case. I mean, to just essentially a lot of these situations, you know, it's outright murder. And how can things really get worse than that? Or like in other cases, like um, at the beginning of the episode when I was talking about, you know, the black women who were slaves who like you know they were their genitals were like mutilated for the sake of you know with no anesthesia that's dignity Mm -hmm. humility like there's so many there's so many more layers Mm -hmm. to to you know and i certainly not saying one form of medical you know prejudice is worse than another but that's there's just so much so many more layers to that yeah. that 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 was that's hard well you know it's to like to asking someone would you rather be raped or would you rather be murdered and depending yeah. you know they're obviously both really horrible horrible things and um this stuff happened unfortunately not too long ago and i think no. in less overt ways things still happen that are like this right So, yeah, I that's all I have to say. I could say a lot more. I mean, I think that there is so, you know, these are just two cases that I wanted to highlight that I had learned about and then going back now, you know, learned about even more. But um, I don't think that this should end. I think that we should keep looking for injustices and um and sharing them and spreading and and being outraged yeah well and this um definitely still affects i mean racism affects the mental health field pretty significantly um just like systemic racism and lack of resources and maybe also in more overt ways too um I'm reading like a book on it right now. So if I learn anything, I'll report back. But until I actually know anything, I won't say too much. But on that note, we uh, obviously always welcome feedback, but we especially welcome feedback on this episode. And although this is a topic that we are especially not experts on, um, you know, wanted to put something out there. So thank you. Allie for speaking on this topic. Thank you for this consult.